Welcome. My name is Jesse Lyon, and you're listening to the Tripping Off Podcast. We have come a long way in recognizing and validating the experiences, identities, and sexual expression of those who do not fit in the nice and neat gender norm boxes. However, today's guest feels there is a serious double standard at play, and he has gotten into some serious heat on the internet. Let me introduce to you Dr. Joe Court. What many of his haters don't know is that our guest is an author with eight publications, a doctorate degree in sexology, and having made appearances on The Tyra Banks Show and The Oprah and Friends Show. Whether you agree or disagree, Dr. Court raises some honest and thought-provoking questions about sexuality and culture. You'll be surprised what he has to say. This episode of the Tripping Off Podcast was brought to you by Murmur.co. That's M-I-R-M-I-R dot C-O. Social media and the internet are filled with amazing content that teaches us new things every day, from life hacks on how to clean better to influencers who help us through our trauma. But don't you wish that instead of 60 seconds, you could take a whole course from your favorite creator? Murmur allows creators to provide an intimate connection with their audience and to provide courses that teach us more than social media ever could. Whether you're a creator looking to provide quality content for your audience, or if you follow an influencer and want to directly support their content, Murmur.co is where the community lives. Murmur, real communication happens in whispers behind the curtain, and you don't want to be left out. I stumbled across your, your stuff on, uh, on TikTok. Which it was kind of kind of the first question I wanted to ask you about was you are a busy individual, Doctor Court. When when did you pick up your phone? And you're like, you know what? I'm going to invest time in TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's actually been so much fun. It's like the best thing I do. Uh, my social media team said you should try TikTok because uh, I had already been watching the videos and they were like, you know, I think that you would be good. There are other therapists on there. You should try it. So then I did, and I was like hooked. That's fantastic. What what do you think got you hooked to TikTok? So you were already a consumer, but then you jumped into it with social media. Yeah, I think that um, while I don't like the controversy and I don't like all the negativity and the mockery of my topics, um, I enjoy the I enjoy the challenges and I enjoy it's making me think differently. It's making me speak differently about it. And um, I like I've been doing presentations probably 30 of my 36 years as a therapist. So I have a million sound bites. I have a million one minute things to say. So um, it's sort of like, it's easy. I love it. That's fantastic. Yeah. And you know, you mentioned that you do get a lot of uh, controversy, a lot of hate. There's, there's people who, and it makes me miserable just watching it, but there's a lot of people who really are kind of out for you. Do you, it feels like more than most, right? Yeah, it's because of, I really now realized, I mean, I know it's controversial. I knew it would be. The first time I did it, I got a million views and it was a little controversial. The second time I did it in the gym, that the second viral video, that pushed everybody over the edge because of the intersectional um, uh, things I'm talking about, male scripting, patriarchy, sexism, uh, supremacy. All I'm, I'm challenging everything by saying the top dog is able to engage in acts that we usually call disenfranchised and he still gets to keep his privilege. That's what people can't stand. They can't stand it. Mm, so you really feel like that's kind of what hits at the core, you know, and, and for those listening, you know, uh, to kind of explain what you do, maybe you're new to hearing Dr. Joe Court here, um, but specifically somebody who is maybe a white heterosexual male engaging in homosexual activities 
people feel disenfranchised. They're like, how, how should that be allowed? That's, that's against the rules. Am I getting that right? Yeah. And I think I was most um, surprised. I still kind of feel surprised. I have to be honest that young people don't understand because in my generation and the generations after me, and even before me fought really hard, really hard to say that what we do in bed is not, does not define who we are in life. So if, and we, I thought we all agreed on that. And then suddenly I'm saying the very thing is true for straight men. Oh, except straight men. If straight men do it, then uh, what they do in bed defines them. If a straight woman does it, no, 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 she's good to go. That doesn't define her. You can't have all these messages. They're too conflicting. Mm. Uh, the, the rules are not consistent from one category to the other. That's a great thing to say. They're not consistent. They're, and they're not consistent because I think that what I'm talking about has too many intersectional factors, especially about challenging ma male masculinity, really. Mm. So do you think that you get more, uh, more controversy, more conflict with uh, the straight culture or with LGBTQ culture? You get it from both. Both. I get it from both equally. And in ah. fact, somebody wrote an article. This is the first time I've never had this happen where people are writing articles about me that don't include me. Like they're they usually articles. They call me and we want to do this article. But now I'm finding them on the Internet. And one of them, a couple of them said, Joe Court has d uh, divided the Internet. But and then one said, wow. I've actually united gays and straights because they're both against me for the same reason. I know it's really weird. So how, how can they say both? What You've divided the Internet, but you've also brought the Internet together. <laughs> That's, yeah, you're right. I don't know. I, don't, I think, it's I, all, you know, they're trying to make it dramatic. Well, you're ruffling some feathers. That's for sure. And I think that's a good thing. I do, too. And I've learned a lot about what kind of feathers get ruffled. And it's all there's like five different. I've noticed now there's like five different camps that have uh, really bad feelings about it. And every time I do another video on it, it's those five same camps that come after me. Well, five camps. Now, I mean, for me, I've seen a lot from, you know, sort of straight community and, you know, LGBT community. What are these five you're talking about? So uh, the religious camp, for sure, come after ah, me. And it reminds there. me of, yeah, the early days of my uh, 80s and 90s being a gay therapist and getting all this hate mail from religious, um, you know, actual mail, U.S. mail. They would clip out the Bible and uh, pages and highlight and do all the stuff. So I'm getting that. Mm. Yeah, I and saw your, getting, you uh, showed up on uh, the Tyra Banks show. And that was, that was back then, you know, a lot of oh, yeah. controversy yeah. stuff. Yeah, that was. That, oh, the mixed orientation marriage. That's right. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. And then I'm getting, yes, the straight community who are like, no, no, no. You know, they think I'm some closeted gay guy who uh, just got, uh, I can I swear on your podcast? I don't know where it goes. Absolutely. No, they think, and they've actually said it on there. Um, you, it looks like you just got fucked in the locker room and you're trying to make sense out of what happened to you. Like, mm. get off fucking TikTok and Google me, you idiot. I'm a gay guy. <laughs> I, you know what I mean? If that's the most infuriating thing is that I'm trapped in this, in this persona of being closeted. Yeah, I've, I've, uh, I've had some people actually send me some of your videos with that kind of caption to it. They're like, oh, well, look, this person seems confused. I'm like, and then I look into you, I'm like, Whoa, no, Dr. Court has been doing this for years and years and years. Written, I mean, I can't even count the books. I think eight books you've written or more. Uh, I've had six of them. Six of them. Okay, well, you co-wrote co some of the other ones. But uh, you've been doing this a while. This is not new. You're, <laughs> you're not confused. No. Uh, but people no. get that and impression. It's not even just my, they do. And it's not even just my research. That's why I said in the video, 
Google me, look up this material. If you don't like me, go read other people. But people, you know, I actually discovered, I, I usually call people that think their opinion matters more than my 36 year experience. I call them alpha stupid. <laughs> alpha You're alpha stu stupid. <laughs> but my husband's like, no, no, no. There's actually a real word um, you, that's more polite. And I'm like, what is it? It's called Dunning-Kruger. And it's an actual phenomenon of people with low cognitive abilities who think their opinion matters more than science. It's bizarre. Oh, I'm going to use that more often. Thank you for that tidbit. <laughs> Dunning-Kruger. Yep, yep. Yes. Oh, goodness. Yeah. How do you, how do you find, I mean, personal question, how do you find the motivation inside yourself to, to deal with all this? Does, does this kind of fuel you? Is there a greater purpose to the work that you do? That's like, okay, even through all the hate, I have to accomplish, or I have to make this happen. Well, when it first happened, I was like, maybe I should stop doing this. I, what I was more worried about was the hate was I didn't want to become like Mommy Dearest. This is what I always say. Mommy Dearest, that movie, you're, I don't know how you look young. How old are you? <laughs> I'm too young. I'm 28. You're 28. And I don't mean that in a negative way. So you're, you're not old enough to, I went to the original movie of Mommy Dearest. And at the time, um, she, this was supposed to be an Academy Award appearance and, and picture. This was supposed to win and be nominated. And that's the, you know, now you, as your age, everybody's age, it turned into this campy, funny, mocked thing. And I got really scared that I was going to become like that. That was my biggest fear. And then I just uh -huh. had to ride the waves. I thought about taking down the video and I thought, fuck it. I am not taking down this video. I'm going to go with, go with it. So, um, I did, and it's not turning into that. Wow. Yeah. And then, and then here, here it is. I mean, you've kind of blown up very recently with all this stuff going on. Twice. Well, three times. The very first time I did it, it blew up. And then the second one in the gym went viral twice. And yeah, they're mocking me, but here's what I think. And this is probably why I'm able to tolerate the hate and the negativity. Yeah. It's starting a conversation. Whether you agree, whether you like it, whether you want to mock me, you're talking to me. You're not ignoring the topic. The topic means something to you or you would not duet me and stitch me and, and comment. Yeah, it's, it's not only uh, interesting information, but it's so worthwhile that people are taking the time to comment, express opinions, start a conversation about it. And I think that's what, you know, you, your videos went viral and popped up on my For You page. And so I followed because I'm like, Oh, this is interesting. Like this is, this is something that isn't just, it's not someone falling off a skateboard or someone, you know, doing a satisfying video where they squish Play-Doh. This has some real implications and is thought provoking enough to where it's making me consider, huh, what are the things that I've been assuming for so long that maybe I never really challenged? And that makes me feel great that a young person like you would, would take the time to critically think about what I'm saying because the LGBT community is, is always doing that, but not for straight people. It's like, so that's the other camp that's against me. These, these, they're, they're identity, they're the identity police. And they uh -huh. believe that um, identity should matter in what you're fantasizing about and what you're doing sexually. And they don't understand that it doesn't matter that the things that are wrong and the things that are taboo are often the things that are really hot in our fantasies. And that's why a lot of these straight men do it. Mm. Yeah. Well, that makes me wonder, you know, a big question that I've had, and I was curious for your input is, do you think we're moving past or what are your thoughts on the, the current just climate? There's a lot of labels 
there's so many different like little categories. And, you know, if you're this, you're into this category. If there's this, there's this category. Are we moving through that? Are we kind of stuck with these labels? What's your take on the current culture with all the different labels we got going on? I would love to hear your thoughts too, but I think it's, we're moving through this. I think what I love is that the young generation now is saying, you know, screw you. I'm not going to fit myself into some category to make you happy. Those categories don't apply to me. I'm going to create my own. I'm going to have my own boutique identity and, and I'm going to tell you who I am. You're not going to tell me. I love the spirit of it. And so, yeah, people get thrown around because there's so many different options now, but I think it's because we're breaking down the old uh, rigid, rigid identities. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and my thoughts on it are, are very similar. I think when we create kind of a label, you know, and, and so my, my side of TikTok is I do dream interpretation and hypnotherapy and I'm a licensed mental health counselor in uh, the state of Florida with a couple private practice locations. And so when I think about this and I'm working with my clients, especially with the hypnosis stuff, when we put a label to something, my opinion is that the label really is there uh, to create safety, to create ease. You know, when I can say this is this and I can call it something that creates a level of disconnect, that creates a level of security for me because I've mentally categorized it. But what you lose out on is the emotional and the relational nuance of that thing. And so as soon as I label something, well, now I don't have to think about it or emotionally relate to it as intensely as I did before. So, you know, when it comes to labels for sexuality and gender, uh, I get it. I think there was a time, uh, and I think we're moving past that time where labels needed to be there in order to create some awareness of this is what I am. This is how I'm different than you. But now that the conversation has moved on and we're creating more labels, I think we're getting to the point where there's so many labels that I don't think they matter as much anymore. We're learning to accept people for who they are. And that makes me really excited. Me too. Me too. So then hopefully this moves earlier and earlier in people's childhoods. So there's permission to know you're anything other than heterosexual and cisgender. Right. And you can, you can be like, okay, who are you as a human being? Like, let's, let's, <laughs> let's spend some time relating with you, developing who you are so we can understand uh, and validate that. I mean, that's really the point, isn't it? Yeah. So you can, um, you can have uh, opportunity to know that you're, you could be gay, you could be straight, you could be bi, you could be pan, you could be fluid. But the only option you're given right now is straight and cisgender. And then you have to go figure it all out on your own, unless you're from a family that gives you more permission. And that's rare. That is rare. That is more rare. So, so, I mean, kind of with that, one of, one of the things I wrote down was, you know, this, the term gay, uh, what is that changing? Is that need to be, um, I don't know, not done away with, but you know, your take and what causes you to be controversial is you're almost redefining that word. Uh, it's gay and straight. And so how does that change? Like if, if you were to see what you wanted to come out of this, How does that term change? How do we start to interact differently? So here's how I see it. We have a sexual orientation and an erotic orientation. Okay. So a sexual orientation is gay, straight, bi, uh, you know, you're who you're attracted to, you know, men, women, both, a blend of both, neither. Um, Then we have erotic orientation, the things that get us off, the things that bring us to orgasm. So you might identify as gay and be a gay pride activist, but your erotic 
orientation, your erotic interests are to be called a faggot and bullied and slapped around and spit at and called, you know, so, or you could be a, a female a activist who is into feminism, but at night wants to be treated like a, a slut and the C word. And so mm. they, that doesn't mean she's any less of an activist or the gay guy is any less of an activist. It means their erotic orientation. And that's what I'm trying to say about these straight guys. Erotically, they're into something sexual with men, but they're not into men. If you talk to them, they're like, I'm attracted to women. The men are in the way on the beach. I don't look at them. I'm looking at women. I'm thinking about women. But every once in a while, I like to get into this erotic um, sexual behavior that involves a man. But I'm not into the man. I'm into the behavior. Mm. Okay. Okay. So is it is the erotic uh, desire devoid, like separate from it's a male? It's just the behavior. So it doesn't matter if it's a male or a female or is it right? No, it is that it's a male. That just happens to be my erotic thing. But I don't really want to be, you know, spend my life with a male. I'm straight. But there's this erotic, you know, thoughts, some kind of fantasies about men. If that kind of makes right. sense. Right. When you think about, yeah, it is, it's both really. It, it's, okay. a, it's a lot of things. When, when gay men have sex with women, we don't say, eh, he's not gay anymore. He must be bi or he's a latent heterosexual. Ah. We don't say when lesbians have sex with men, we don't say, eh, she's probably bi and she's not lesbian anymore. It's magic, right? We, we get that she gets to be lesbian and gay and they can have sex with this, uh, another gender, but not straight people, not straight men. Straight women get to do it. There's, I always say, for um, gay, for men, if they have a non-heterosexual thought, they're stigmatized. And when women have a non-heterosexual thought, she's fetishized. And both mm. are terrible. Mm. So really, this is, I mean, I, I like the way you put that. This is very simple. You know, imagine in your head the way that you think, the way that culture in general thinks about women. Maybe they're straight, right? But maybe they have uh, an erotic fling with another woman. And that's like fetishized. Why shouldn't the same principles apply to a man? straight yep yep or we know there are yeah there are people that are in the bdsm community bondage discipline sadomasochism mm -hmm. they're into uh the play and the power exchange and impact play humiliation all kinds of stuff and the play is what's important to them not gender straight men would prefer to do this with women but if a man is around to give it to them harder or they can take it harder they're willing to play with that guy for the play not the guy it's a it's a difference Ah, that makes a lot of sense. Okay. So uh, then I'm curious about your own sort of theoretical orientation when it comes to, you know, being a psychologist. Um, where do you think that this kind of stuff comes from? I mean, the way that I operate in my practice is a little bit more psychodynamic. I'm looking for unconscious patterns, right? With the hypnotherapy, I'm looking for these integrated unconscious ways of thinking that maybe haven't been examined. And in my mind, that's kind of where behavior comes from. Do you think about it in the same way? Does this come from a certain place or is that just not even a concern for you? No, I do. I, I that's like my main thing. So my, um, I have a book called awesome. erotic orientation okay. and in that book, I, and there's other research I cite that, that also do this. I like that you do that because not everything comes from our past, mm -hmm. but I always say we have a non-sexual narrative embedded in our sexual narrative. And if you tell, and I have a, actually I have a book for gay men, I call it cracking the erotic code. And if you can tell me your sexual fantasies, and then I know a little bit about your family and your history, I can help you understand why you get off on the things you get off on. Ah, 
So, well, I'm almost hearing a similarity in the type of hypnotherapy work I do where I'm using images and stories and behavior to find deeper meaning. You're using sex to find deeper meaning, erotic uh, desires to find deeper meaning inside a person's story, right? Exactly. I love that. Exactly. Ah, that's awesome. And I saw you're EMDR trained, right? I am. Yep. So you do that and that that very much deals with the unconscious. It does. The problem, you know, even like, so I'm a, um, a, as a therapist and I'm an EMDR trauma therapist, but sadly that there is no sexuality training. My PhD is in clinical sexology. That's mm-hmm. why I know so much of this stuff. I've been studying sex for like, I don't know, 15 years or, or more really, but formally the last 15 years. And I get that sex is nuanced and it's not neatly packaged. Mm-mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very, uh, it's very messy, but it almost holds in my head, it almost holds a, a narrative form. So I think people want it to fit into these nice, neat little categories, and they don't. It's like trying to fit a, a book into a category. You know, there's a story yes. there. You can't just reduce the story to this one little label. You have to follow the evolution of the characters. I mean, sexuality, I, I think, is the same way, and it sounds like that's what you're trying to say. Yeah. So I wrote this book called, Is My Husband Gay, Straight, or Bi? So that it's really about male sexual fluidity. And most of it is about straight men having sex with men. And the first two chapters are all about men who've been sexually abused by male perpetrators in childhood. Mm. And I did two chapters on it because it's primarily what I see in my office where they return to the scene of the sexual crime. And when you find out what they're doing and you find out how they were abused, the story is the same. The theme is the same. They're reenacting their early trauma by as an adult. So this has nothing to do with sex. These aren't sexual urges. These are trauma urges. That's different. Ah, so would there be then in the goal, the goal of therapy? Hmm. See, that gets a little sticky, right? Is it like, is then the goal of therapy to work through the trauma and those things will go away and those are different from erotic desires? No. So that's old fashioned thinking. The old fashioned yeah, thinking is. was if you heal something, then it just magically goes away. That's not true. Mm-hmm. Now we know the research is you, it, you, it magically goes from it controlling you, not magically, it's the work you're doing. <laughs> Rather true. than it being in control, you learn to be in control of it. The fantasies remain. You, and then that was like a, a, a loss for most therapists. They would say, well, then treatment failed. That's not fair. And it's not true. You can't give somebody an erotichectomy. These things happened when they <laughs> were young. They got eroticized. I know, isn't that a great word? That's good. Uh, that, that one got me. <laughs> yeah, t- use it. I got it from someone else. It's it because our clients even want eroticectomies. I don't like thinking like this. Give me that. There's no such thing. Right. Well, as a trauma hypnotherapist, uh, people tell me all the time, they're like, oh, so I'm going to do hypnotherapy and you're just going to erase this memory. I'm like, no, that's not what we're going to do at all. <laughs> all right. No, it's, that's, that's, I know terrible. you get that a lot. I, oh. get, I have clients that want to go to you and, and say, and I know in your field that you can't erase a memory. No, we can't erase a memory and we can't do uh, memory recovery either because the mind does not work like a VCR tape. It's not how it is. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Right, it's not. So then oh, people then yeah. have to learn, they still have these fantasies, even though we do all this work, you know, they still get off on what they get off on. And that can be very discouraging for a lot of people. Mm. Uh, and, and engaging in those fantasies, regaining uh, control and validation, uh, and in, then engaging in those fantasies can actually be healthy. 
Yes. But um, it takes time for people to see that. So I, it's like the Buddha, Buddhist thinking. You're not yeah. responsible for the first arrow that hits you, but you're responsible for what you do with the following arrows that are coming your way. And I always tell people the first arrow that hit you was non-consent and it wasn't sexual and it was uh, about um, uh, violation. Now you get to play with, now it's your fantasy and you get to play with it consensually, openly and, um, and make it yours. Wow. That's, that's kind of beautiful. <laughs> it is, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. It really is. You know, another thing that you talk a lot about on, on your page uh, and you've done a lot of work on is uh, sex addiction and kind of demystifying and kind of correcting some misunderstandings about sex addiction. Um, can you, can you help explain a little bit of the work that you do with sex addiction to us? Yep. So uh, for 20 years, I was a sex addiction therapist and it wasn't until I, I became a sex therapist and, and uh, became sexually informed that I realized that the sex addiction model is abusive and harmful and used um, by people and actually implemented by therapists who are not trained in sexuality, sadly. And so um, I don't I, there are people that have out of control sexual behaviors, compulsive sexual behaviors, and I do help people with those, but I don't use the addiction model because the idea would be that what you're doing is pathological and wrong. And I don't believe that it may be interfering with your life, but there are many reasons it's interfering with your life that may have nothing to do with um, pathology. I mean, pathologizing the actual behavior. Got it. So this would be, I'm trying to think of a good sort of analogy to make. So you know, if someone's doing like some self-harm behaviors and they're addicted to that, that's very different from this kind of misconceived model of sexual addiction where sex is normal and healthy and valid, uh, but perhaps it's acting out in a way that's inappropriate or causing. Well, problems. they might be right. They might be doing something that's causing harm to themselves, but we need to figure out what kind of harm. So most people come in and they say, um, the harm is I'm hurting my wife. Well, that's not, that's not addiction. Okay, you're hurting your wife and you're hurting your marriage, but it could be because it's normal for you. You never talked about it. it, uh, it she may have a disgust response. She may be a prude. Who knows what's going on? There could be so many things, but just because it's interfering doesn't mean that the behavior is a problem. It may mean that you don't know how to manage it. You might be kinky. You might have a fetish and you don't know how to manage it. Nobody's ever taught you how to manage it. So now it's interfering with your life, just like being gay. I always hmm. tell people, you know, when you're in the closet and you're coming out, it interferes with your life and <laughs> yeah. it, it's out of control and you lose control. It's like, it's a nightmare and it, it, it causes so many problems, but it's not gay. It's the fact that you didn't know you were gay and now you're in a, in a lifestyle that doesn't support being gay. Uh, so, so there's a real sort of social and environmental factor that plays a role here. I mean, if you're like, you're talking about, you know, the stereotypical straight male who gets into a monogamous heterosexual relationship and then you start to experience these erotic fantasies about another male well your life is kind of set up to be a certain way it's set up for this closed monogamous heterosexual relationship for you to really move into that and to accept yourself um well that's going to cause some disruption in that system doesn't necessarily mean you're yes. an addict Right, exactly. And, and mm. you know, and then we say, we always say in sex, in the sex therapy world, what are you addicted to? You can't be addicted to dopamine. You can't be addicted to any of your own chemicals. It's impossible. There's no, you have to be addicted to something outside your body, not inside. So addiction just isn't the right huh. word. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's an interesting distinction. You can't be addicted to something inside your body. 
It has to be outside. Right. You can hit, you can be habituated. Like there are people that we call high sensation seekers. Okay. So, uh, and we know these people, they climb mountains. Uh, we, they jump out of planes, yeah. but if we, those same people climbed a mountain naked and masturbating with erections or jumped out of a plane naked, um, and masturbating down, people would be like, what's wrong with you? But, but if they didn't, if sex wasn't a part of it, then we're okay with high sensation seekers. So, so we pathologize mm. people that do that experience pleasure in that way. Ah, so it really is. I mean, you're just trying to lend a more objective lens to looking at these things. You're like, let's, let's just look at this for what it is. This is, this is kind of straightforward here. Yes. And I only because people have challenged me and I've challenged my own thinking and, um, you know, there's a lot of people out there that think they're sex addicts because they're kinky, sex addicts because they're gay. I mean, it's just a, it's an, it's a word that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I guess when you explain it that way, that makes a lot of sense. So, uh, you know, with, with the sexual addiction stuff um, and the work that you do, one of the questions I had down here as well is uh, jealousy. Uh, you've kind of done a lot of work about uh, toxic monogamy and kind of talking about this idea and jealousy um, playing a part in relationships. And that kind of played into our last question of sexual addiction, where kind of explain where my mind's going with this, right? Sometimes when a person's in an environment uh, and in a setting that is, well, different from how they evolve as a person, well, jealousy can be one of the things that keeps them in it, right? Their partner will be jealous or they don't want to have these discussions. You know, they'll ruffle feathers. Is jealousy healthy to have for the other partner? Or is that also a part of that toxicity? I, I feel like health, uh, jealousy is healthy. It's, it's just normal. It's part of the human condition. It's yeah. what people do with the jealousy. So I'm jealous. So now you partner have to help regulate my jealousy. You know, now it might be mm. true that you're doing something. Uh, and, and But the thing is, I would say most people don't negotiate their relationships and especially monogamous people don't negotiate their monogamy. So open relationships negotiate and they anticipate jealousy and they have the conversations, whereas monogamous couples don't. And so mm. now the jealousy is there. They don't know how to handle it. They don't know how to talk through it. And um, so then they end up uh, demanding from the other person that you need to be a certain way. So I feel better. That's toxic. Ah, that makes a lot of sense. So are you, are you kind of saying that even monogamous relationships, closed monogamous relationships should have this, um, well, have this kind of integrated part where they're continuing to negotiate the relationship. That should be an ongoing conversation. Ongoing and should not be on auto renewal. It should be mm. six to months into a year, like just like open relationships do. Monogamous people should do it too. Mm. Six months to a year. That's kind of a good time frame. I think so. You know, I'll say to my couples, they'll say, well, what is there to negotiate? We're monogamous. Well, is it okay to flirt online? Can you have anonymous sex, cyber sex with somebody in Romania? Can you masturbate? And then one person's like, well, no, we're monogamous. And then the other person's like, well, I'm okay with those things. They <laughs> well, never negotiated it. Ah. Right. It's conversation. There's a monogamy has a lot of assumptions. A lot. And then couples end up fighting over contracts they never made. Uh, I see. I see. So then how does, how does marriage play a role into that? Because then you've got this lifelong contract, right? That maybe has these assumptions put into it that weren't even mm -hmm. really well known is, is marriage uh, kind of in your experience, in your opinion, 
is marriage a viable option? Like it's a big commitment. Yeah, I, I, I know. I think it's great. I think you have to get away from the heteronormative, um, the, the rules that have been mandated for marriage have to be challenged. Like you you get to be in a marriage the way you want to be in marriage. You don't have to go along with what everyone else is doing. Your contracts can change. People change. You can open it. You can close it. You get to do it. You can live together. You can live separately. You can sleep together. You can sleep separately. I think that that's the best part of all this, um, uh, these identity uh, labels that are out there is you get to make marriage. You get to make your own personal life exactly how you want to make it custom made. Mm. Well, that, you know, I, I really appreciate that about you, Dr. Court. Uh, your, your thoughts are consistent across all of this. It should all be individual communicated uh, and explored continually because every person is a unique individual. And that holds true for the, marriage agreement that holds true for the relationship agreement that holds true for erotic and gender identity, all that stuff. Agreed. hundred percent. Everyone has their own erotic thumbprint, their own identity thumbprint, their own marriage thumbprint. And I have to be honest, Mike and I have been together 28 years and I wanted a heteronormative life, even though I was gay, because I came from the eighties and uh, it was right out of the seventies and sixties where, you know, the homosexual man was living with his mother and he wore polyester pants that were up to his nipples. And if you ever saw the midnight cowboy, there's a homosexual in there that um, I even hate using that word. It's negative, but he has a picture of his mother and he hires a prostitute. I remember thinking, fuck, that's going to be me. That's my life <laughs> as a gay guy, you know? And oh, I no. didn't want that. No. So I went, I went the other way and I'm like, I'm going to have whatever my sister had. She had a boyfriend. I had a boyfriend. She got engaged. I got engaged. She got married. I got married. And I'm not, I don't regret any of it. But in my forties, I went, wait a minute. I'm a gay man. I get to do whatever I want here. What am I doing? I, I have my own kinky interests. I have mm. my own interests about open marriage. I have my own ideas of what I want my, my life to look at, look like. And I turned to my husband and we started having those difficult conversations. Wow. That's brave. How did... Man, do you have any advice for navigating through those difficult conversations, whether it's erotic stuff or just day-to-day -day life stuff? I mean, what what's your advice oh, so for hard. navigating those with your partner? That you should really, well, be really clear about what you want, and you're never going to be 100% clear, but I went to a lot of therapy and a lot of workshops and a lot of healing on my own before I presented this to him, but I knew that I wanted to be with him for the rest of my life, and I wanted to come out in the way and live my life in a different way. And that they weren't compatible if he was going to say, I can't do it. And I was ready mm -hmm. to say, then, then I can't stay. And I didn't want that to be an option, but I had to be ready for that. And thankfully, he didn't say that. He said, I'm okay with this. Just be careful when you're out there. And we have a, an agreement together and it's consensual and we made it work. Wow. That's amazing that, that they would be so open to, to navigating that because that's a tough conversation. Like you said, you had to be really clear on what you wanted and know the implications of that. I mean, that's, that's scary. It's yep. nice when things are simple. Like when things are, uh, I, I'm saying simple, I mean, fake simple where you're not negotiating. You're just, well, making assumptions. I know. Right. I agree. And when I tell my clients are, even if your partner says no, your yes doesn't have to turn into no, there's still a yes in the room and in the relationship. And that means the conversation gets to continue going. It may be that you don't do it until there's some consent between the two of you. But the yes doesn't automatically turn into a no. It's not fair. Just like the no doesn't automatically turn into a yes. 
Yeah. And I'm glad you said that it goes both ways as well. You know, just because one person's unhappy doesn't mean that the other partner should be forced into doing things, affirmative stuff uh, that they don't feel comfortable with. They should be respected. Exactly. And not, and not shame like, Oh, you're a prude or Oh, this or that. Most therapists align with the no in the room. Well, they're not comfortable. So that, and then therapists will say, well, um, that's not fair. One in sex, one is usually going along with what the other one wants, and that's not fair. And I say, wait a minute, that's marriage. One wants to raise the kids another one way, and one wants to raise them another way. One wants to live here, and one wants to live there. One wants to have, um, you know, their parents involved, and others don't. One wants something more than the other, and we're always going along. We're always making decisions to stretch in our partner's direction. Why, when it's sexual, do we do we put more weight on that? Especially on the no side. Yeah, most therapists do kind of align with that. I think that's more traditional, do I say? But yeah. It's bias. And it's personal for them. And it's unexamined sexuality of their own. Mm. You think there's a lot of like, uh, what would you call transference there? Countertransference. A lot. And that's what I had to look at as a sex therapist. And in all my trainings, I'm really helping therapists do that for themselves. So they're not um, uh, imposing their beliefs on their clients. You know, the whole thing is we want to stay, protect our clients from us. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, that's a scary place when the therapist is trying to protect themselves from their client. (laughs) Right, right. Uh, It shouldn't be that way. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. And you, and a lot of this work you do through modern sex therapy Institute, uh, are you, I, I was looking up a little bit. Are you a professor there or do you do classes there? I'm co-owner and co-director. So there's three of us, Rachel needle needle and Ricky Siegel. And I do teach courses there, but we really bring in a lot of voices and we, we have a PhD program for sex therapy. We have a, um, uh, certification programs for therapists that want to be sex therapists. We have a lot of different offerings actually. That's amazing. Yeah, I saw that. And I was like, wow, that's why I was saying (laughs) spending time on TikTok. You you run a lot of things. You got a private practice in uh, Michigan with, I think, 15 therapists. Isn't that right? I do. And I have just recently let go of uh, pretty much most of my clients and I'm on sabbatical. I don't know that I'll go back to doing ongoing therapy, but I can't do it all. Like this is the first Mm. time in my life that I can't do it all. I've always done it all, but I want I'm not I'm going to burn out. I can't do it. Wise, yeah, wise. So what's, what's next for you? <laughs> I think right now I'm just set. I'm happy with modern sex. I feel really good doing that. Really good raise, um, you know, growing my, um, uh, practice with my 15 therapists, TikTok. I, I want to continue doing, I'd like to do a Ted talk. Uh, I'm glad I did TikTok before I did a TED talk because I want to do a tech talk on straight men who have sex with men, but I, I don't think I could have handled this big, huge, big deal of a TED talk and had all this negative comments. It would have surprised me and overwhelmed me, but Mm. now I'm ready. TikTok sort of helped me. Yeah. I have this, I have this argument with my friends. Sometimes, uh, they, they demonize social media and say, Oh, you know, it's, it's too much, uh, peer pressure. It's too much eyes on you. It's too much criticism. Uh, And I'm like, no, I like social media for me has been so amazing because I've gotten those negative comments. I've gotten those, uh, criticisms and I've gotten to experience those in a more gradual progressive way. And so now it's like, okay, I'm realizing I didn't think anybody would disagree with this. I thought this was pretty obvious, (laughs) but I'm like, Oh yeah, no, that they are. Well, they are clearly very mad at me based on what they said. (laughs) Uh, and so I love this. 
Yeah, it's prepared me in ways. And I, I really, I hear and I validate that when you're saying it, TikTok really does prepare you because you get those opinions from people that you would run into that you probably would never run into any other way. No, and that's what makes it so nice. But one thing I will say that I'm pretty much better now and I block a lot of people. You know, you look, um, you can attack my my thinking, you can attack my my theories, but once you start attacking me, now now we're that's not I, and then people what they do is they get off of TikTok and they find me on Instagram or get me on YouTube. I can't believe you're so immature that you would block me. And I still don't talk to them because all they want to do is attack me. But sometimes I do go back and forth because somebody hooks me and it happens, but like, I, I don't realize it until I'm into it. So I, and then sometimes I'm going back and forth and I'm furious. And then I realize, wait a minute, let me look at their profile. And they're 12. <laughs> like I'm fighting with a 12 year old. I forget that there's a bunch of kids on here and they don't even know what they're talking about. Oh, so, man. <laughs> <laughs> They'll get, I mean, those 12 year olds, they got time. They got time. <laughs> They got oh my God. And there's, and they know how to provoke, provoke you. Oh yeah. They've got the technical skills. I, if you've ever been in a uh, call of duty, modern warfare lobby, you know how it gets nasty. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've never been in there, but I can oh, vi video game lobbies. If you're playing video games, those kids, they are quick. And I tell you, they can come up with some real zingers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. So, so managing, managing those and, uh, encouraging people. That's great. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad you do what you do. I don't know if I would have run into you any other way except for the magic of uh, the TikTok algorithm. So I'm very grateful for that. And uh, Dr. Court, thank you so much for being on the show and hanging out. This has been great. Is there any, um, I mean, there's, there's so many books that you've written. I recommend all of them. Um, you've got a podcast and you've got a YouTube channel that are all fantastic. Definitely you know, join the conversation, check those things out. Cause there's some interesting thoughts to be had. Uh, is there anything else that you, you would want to shout out before we wrap up here? Uh, I don't, I don't know. Thank you so much, by the way. I mean, you're so nice to me. You're so, uh, um, nice about my work and honoring of my stuff. I guess the, the main thing that my goal is, I feel like as a sex therapist and a th therapist, I'm all about shame reduction. And I feel like every day, that's all I do is help people get rid of the stupid shame. That's the layers and layers are over you and find your true erotic sexual self. It's our birthright. It's our fucking birthright. I had a client recently who came in after doing all this work. And he said, I had an orgasm that was so intense. My stomach hurt afterwards. And he started crying mm. and I almost started crying in the room right with him because that is really claiming your birthright that I can have sexual pleasure so intense that my body has ached from it. I think that's a gift. That's amazing. And accepting and validating those things. It's your birthright. I like the way you put that. Yep. I believe in that. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. It's been, it's been a pleasure. Uh, and I hope we run into each other again soon. Thank you so much. Same here.